This is Purple Radio On Demand. Hi, I'm Louis. And I'm Sam. And welcome back to another episode of Chalkboard Ultra, investigating some of the most interesting problems in all of mathematics. Ah, oh, I've missed this. It's been too long. How was your Christmas break? Yeah, it was alright. It was Christmassy. Christmassy? Yeah. The socks you got me were an absolute dream as well. I They're so comfortable, so thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, I can't really say the same thing for Richard, but the, <laughs> the sentiment is appreciated. He's so fluffy. Look at him. I can see why you bought him. Yes. Can I keep him? No. No. <laughs> well, anyway, what are we doing today, Louis? Well, for the main topic of this episode, we want to talk about probability. No, not again. Yes, just like Sam, I can feel you cringing right now, but please don't leave us because we have some very interesting things to discuss. Is there a chance we put some physical use to these concepts? Well, chance is a fine thing, Sam. A fine thing indeed. Let's start off our discussion with a talk about pi. Ooh, a bit of an early start on your Pi Day celebrations, don't you think? Don't worry, it won't be the whole episode. Now, if you're familiar with the history of Pi, you will know that finding an approximation for it was a very challenging task. In the very early days, you had Archimedes, and he used polygons to try and bound the value of Pi. And as previously mentioned, Madhava and Leibniz used infinite series, and there's also works of William Shanks and Ramanujan, and all of these. However, let us attempt to estimate the value of pi using the ideas of probability. Hmm. Could you elaborate a little? Well, this is all about chance, this episode. Now, have you heard of the dartboard approach, Sam? Yes, I have, actually. This is the way of approximating pi by randomly throwing darts at a dartboard, right? You have a circular dartboard and there's a square along the outside. If I randomly throw a dart at the wall, then we ask what the probability is it that it will land inside the circle. Absolutely. This stems from Archimedes' techniques of perhaps bounding the value of pi. But it's best solved through areas. Quite so. Now, if we were to suppose that we got a dartboard of radius 1, so the area is just pi, while the area of a square with radius 1 is, of course, 2 by 2, so that's just 4. So the probability that it lands in the required area would be pi divided by 4, a.k.a. the ratio of the areas. And so by simple rearrangement, we could say that pi would be equal to four times this probability the darts hit the circle. Yeah, so to find this probability, all we need to do is count the number of darts inside the circle and the total amount on the square as a whole. Divide one by the other, and hey presto, that's our probability. So we can say that pi is roughly equal to four times this ratio. Of course, but remember this is only an approximation, Sam. We could try to make it as accurate as we can, throwing more and more darts at random, even perhaps diving into infinity. Well, let's leave the concept of infinity with the last series, but I think the audience gets the picture. All right, all right. Now, intuitively, we could see that as we throw more and more random darts, the proportion of the darts that will fall within the circle to the total thrown overall will approach the ratio of the areas. This way of estimation is called the Monte Carlo method. Shout out to anyone who did data science and statistical computing. But the actual logic behind this comes from something called the law of large numbers. You're telling me there's a law governing the behavior of large numbers? God, next you're going to tell me you've solved the Riemann hypothesis. Not quite. The law of large numbers, or let's just acronym it to LLN, 
is based on the idea that as the number of independent trials increase, the average of the sampled results will approach the true average. A simple example would be tossing a fair coin. You know, I might not get heads in the first few flips, which is far from the expected average of an equal number of heads and tails, but as you keep flipping, the average will converge to a 50-50 split. Yeah, and I remember reading a wiki article... Oh, of course you did. ...about a mathematician called John Kerrick, who was able to flip a coin a total of 10,000 times, and he ended up with 5,067 heads. Just over half, which is sort of expected, because it's close enough to 5,000. True. That must have taken a long while, though. Well, he was interned in Nazi-occupied Denmark, so let's just say he had a lot of time on his hands. <laughs> well, thinking back to our estimate of pi with doing this dart brooch, how does the law of large numbers apply? Well, as the number of random darts thrown increases, the estimated value of pi will converge to the true value of pi. I'd say another way of seeing the law of large numbers is in gambling. There's that saying, isn't there, the house always wins. Whilst a gambler might strike lucky early on, the more bets they play, the long-term results will align with the casino's advantage. That's sometimes called the house edge. Now, this discussion on randomness and independence helps to link ourselves to the gambler's fallacy. And this is the idea that after a series of losses, a gambler expects a win to occur with 100% certainty. Like the hope that a past roll of the dice will influence the next roll of the dice, even when they're you know, statistically independent and they've got no bearing on each other. So let's take a game of roulette. A player might believe that after a series of consecutive reds, black is more likely to occur because it just hasn't shown up in a while. But this is all a lie, because every spin of the roulette wheel is independent of the previous spins, and the odds of getting either red or black remain the same in every single spin. Doesn't matter what came before in the wheel, the odds are still the same. You seem to know a lot about gambling, Sam. Have you ever been? I have actually been to Vegas, but it was before I was 21. I'm still not 21 now, which means I can't gamble until the summer. A real big shame. But I've always liked to try. I know it's a popular popular destination for like stag do's where everyone pays in 50 quid and see who can get the most money why does this fallacy exist though well it's probably due to a bias within humans we tend to view small samples of random events as representative of a much larger whole when discussing this bias the psychologists Tversky and Kahneman refer to the example of a group of people being asked to write down what they thought a series of random fair coin flips would produce and by the law of large numbers we know that the first few flips won't exactly be on a 50-50 split. Exactly. And the group mistakenly wrote down sequences with proportions much closer to 50-50. Remember, the coin has no memory, so it may even give us a series of streaks. Dice to remember what the dice did last time. Let's have a quick detour and talk about the St. Petersburg paradox. More paradoxes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we've got a fair coin being tossed. The initial bet is two pounds. If the coin shows head, we double our money. If it's tails, then the game ends. Louis actually gave me this problem as homework to try, and I figured that in this scenario, a player can win a maximum of two to the n pounds, right? Because if you flip, if you start with two, flip heads, it goes to four, then eight, then 16, and, and so on and so forth. All right, sounds like a good game, right? Well, from the face of it, but I know that you're just going to tell me the catch, aren't you? What's the most you would pay to play this game, Sam? Well, let's think about it in terms of expected values, because that's what we often do with probability. We receive £2 with probability half, because it's 
Four pounds with probability quarter. Eight pounds with probability one over eight. So the expected value of this game, assuming it doesn't end, would be a half times two plus a quarter times four plus an eight times eight. And this continues. But you'll notice that this is just going to be one plus one plus one all the way up to infinity. Hold on. So we just win an infinite amount of money. Well, remember the infinite monkeys. Good thing we've got Richard here. This is a highly unlikely event, but absolutely certain to happen at some point. Well, now this is just a terrible game. It's got the promise of riches, but in reality, you'll most likely just win small amounts. Once you lose, you'll have to restart. But this adds up to infinity, surely? Two pound half a time, and then two pound another time, and go on and go on and go on. You could earn a lot of money. I might wish to spend, like, I don't know, a few quid on this game, but no more. The actual probabilities of this tell us to be incredibly cautious. Now, this discussion of the St. Petersburg Paradox leads on to something called Martingales. Now, imagine we've got a game of chance where a player wages a pound on the outcome of a prospect of doubling his money. If he loses, he wages two pounds on the next play. And if he loses that, then he wages four. If these losses continue, on his nth play, he shall wager two to the n pounds. Okay, I'm going to break that down then. We put in a pound, and if we win, we get two pound. If we put in a pound and then this two pound, we will earn four pounds upon winning. And since this was a three pound play, then we've only profited one pound. And using the power of geometric series, we can see that every time you win under this strategy, you'll only get one pound profit back. And this is the same with any bet, whether it be ten pounds or a hundred pounds. But I think you can see the problem with it, Sam, can't you? Yeah, well, yeah, it's not worth it to gain a small fortune if you need to bring a bigger one with you. You would likely bankrupt yourself using this method before the win was actually achieved. Moreover, you could be playing a game that imposes bet limits, meaning the method fails before it begins. Well, are there any ways of alternating this method? Well, yeah, there's something called the reverse martingale. Now, this is where you reduce your bet on losses and increase your bet on wins. Hold on. If we get a loss, we would reduce a bet in expectation for another loss. And similarly, if we get a win, we increase our bet in expectation for another win. No, that's just a gambler's fallacy again. Indeed. And what the reverse method does is capitalize on streaks that occur. But, of course, as the game continues, those streaks are incredibly likely. Remember what we said about law of large numbers? Yeah. So you'll slowly whittle away your money. Are there any others? Yeah. It's called the Labouchere system, described as a split martingale and named after the English politician Henry Labouchere. It's quite a strange one, so listen in. Before playing a game of roulette, a player decides how much money they want to win and creates a list of positive numbers that sum to that amount. A simple example would be me wanting to win £100, so I'll split that into £50, two twenties and a tenner. Every bet is the sum of the first and last numbers on the list. Win, and the two numbers are deleted from the list. Lose, and the bet lost is added to the end of the list. This continues until either the list is completely crossed out, aka the desired money has been won, or until the player runs out of money. Okay, with my split money, I first bet £60, because that's 50 in a tenner. Win this, and I've now got two 20s to play for. But I lose, and 60 gets added to the list. Now, I, this does sound like a strange system. What's the maths behind it? Well, a roulette wheel will have numbers 1 to 36 with colours alternating between red and black. But, additionally, you've also got 0 and 00, zero coloured in green. Ah, so given this setup, the even money bets, like even odd, red, black, 1 to 18 or 19 to 36, they won't have a 50-50 chance. And what Labouchere does is attempt to offset those odds. 
Now, suppose the bet is always black. Well, then in that case, success will occur 18 times out of 38, which is about 47%. Since the method tells us to cancel two numbers for every win and add one for every loss, if the bets are successful more than a third of the time, the list is all crossed out and the player wins. Sounds like a better strategy then. We might as well go gambling now. Ah, but you might notice something. The more losses a player experiences, the greater the amount being bet. This could lead to them running out of money rather quickly, not to mention again the possibility of bet limits that can just disrupt the method. I have actually been getting into my probability and randomness and chance and all things. Oh dear, have I converted you that easily, Sam? <laughs> well, I'm not a massive reader, but every time I've wanted to read a book, it's always been something academic. And I think I'm studying too much physics and, I don't know, pure mathsy algebra stuff that that's too hard to take in a minute. So I've picked up this book. It's by Kit Yates, How to Expect the Unexpected. A fantastic read. But it's all about le just learning about randomness and how you can actually harness that. It talks about gut feelings, should you listen to them. And there's one chapter that talks about actually expecting things that will seem completely random. The example I often like to give is there's a very small chance that you or I would win the lottery if we bought a ticket tomorrow. True. But there is a 100% chance that someone will win the lottery. Also true. And This feels like analysis one again. <laughs> no, but it's that's just the law of large numbers, isn't it? Well, it's something that I think you can relate to what's called Littlewood's Law. And this is something that was stated by British mathematician John Littlewood and said that a person can be said to experience events that might have the odds of one in a million, and these will happen every month. Every month? Well, I mean, if you've got loads of days, loads of hours, loads of seconds going on, eventually something unlikely will happen. But of course, according to the law of large numbers, that's going to happen anyway. No, exactly. And talking about the lottery, because I, I had a lot of fun just reading through this chapter, in particular, there was someone who won the lottery twice using the same numbers. Now, that's incredibly unlikely, but that's, you know, if you do the maths and you say, okay, if I pick six random numbers and I win the lottery, what's that chance? And then what if I pick the same six numbers and win the lottery, what's that chance? It's minute. However, it's got to happen at some point. It reminds me of the joke, what's the probability of winning the lottery? 50%. You win it or you don't. <laughs> that's great. But there is another chapter that talks of randomness in game theory, which is something, spoilers, we'll touch up upon very, very soon. But um, I've got something for you. Pascal's Gambit. Are you talking about Pascal's Wager, the idea of, is there a god? Yes, the whole thing is, it was a French mathematician, plays Pascal, and he used the ideas of randomness to argue the rationality of believing in God. So all he did was just, it was the outcome of a coin flip. If God doesn't exist and you guess this correctly, then the payoff might be that you enjoy your earthly pleasures slightly more than you would have done if you lived a pious, God-fearing life, but, you know, nothing more. But conversely, if God really does exist and you put your money on this, then Pascal argued that the sacrifices made in your mortal life to know, uphold this belief would be far outweighed by your infinite reward in heaven. And talking about St. Peter's Paradox is what reminded me of this because the expected winnings 
would be infinity. Just like believing in God and betting on it, you would get the infinite pleasure of you know living in heaven. So the rationale was to clearly believe in God. Before we end, here's a fun little question. Oh dear. Suppose I have a coin, and I suspect it is biased in some way. How could I unbias this coin? Ooh, that's an interesting idea. I could tell you how to bias a coin. Oh dear. You could just, <laughs> you could just like, I don't know, stick something like a bit of blue tech on one side, which makes it more heavier. It's like with the buttered toast theorem. Have you heard of the buttered toast theorem? I think I have heard of the buttered toast. It's when you butter a slice of toast and you throw it up in the air, it will always land butter side down. Or with the cat theorem, in that cats always land on their feet. Mm -hmm. So what happens if you strap a piece of butter toast to a cat? I don't think you should be left with animals. <laughs> <laughs> okay, seriously though, I imagine we could flip this coin a few thousand times and using the law of large numbers, we'd work out the bias and I suppose in some way just reject any surplus so that we end up with a 50-50 split. Okay, so if we notice that the coin gives head 60% of the time, we would have to reject a head in favour of tails a sixth of the time in order to bias the coin. And if we had a dice, which I know you do, Louis, we could use it to reject a head for every tail, say whenever I know, a one is rolled. But how do we know the dice is fair? Ah, we might be going in circles. Also, do you want to start flipping the coin a thousand times, two thousand times? No, not really. I think my thumb would fall off. There is a far simpler way to unbias a coin, and it was suggested by von Neumann. Here, we flip a coin twice. If it gives head-head, or tail-tail, we disregard it. If we have head-tail, we treat it as a head, and if we had tail-head, we treat it as a tail. Now, what can we say about the remaining probabilities? Yeah, if the probability of getting a head from our bias coin is... Well, we'll just call it P for argument's sake. Then the probability of a head tails would be P and one minus P, and similarly the probability of tail head would be one minus P times P. They're equal. And since they're equal, what does that mean? We've gone back to a fifty-fifty split. We've just unbiased our coin. Yes, and with using something called the law of total expectation, we can work out the expected number of flips to achieve a fair result. This being one divided by P times one minus P. And note that. The greater the bias, the more trials that will be needed to unbias the coin, right? Now, this is a lot of maths for the end of the conversation, but it gives a little insight into what the listeners may want to research themselves. Here's one for you. I now present to you the law of long episodes. The more minutes we pick up, the fewer listeners by the end we have. Joking. So we should end it now? I think so. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chalkboard Ultra and for helping us start off this series with a bang. We have lots of fun things lined up, and we're really excited to share them with you. Join us next time as we delve deeper into the wonders of mathematics. Give us a follow on Instagram at ChalkboardUltra if you're new here, and consider leaving us some feedback. See you next week, keep safe, and keep well. He's an odd-looking fellow, isn't he? What do you think he does when we're not around? I have no idea. Mm. By the way, did you see where I put my typewriter? Your typewriter? It's got to be around here somewhere. Ah! There we go. Ah, thank you. Wonder where it had gotten to. Hmm. You okay? Yeah, there just seems to be a few monkey hairs on it. Hmm. Wouldn't think anything of it.
I want to read you this passage because it's to do with how we choose things that you know you you think were would be seemingly random not so much in a not so much in a gambling sense but just in in games or you know day-to-day choices some educational psychologists have found that students who genuinely don't know the answer to multiple choice questions tend to favor the middle option it's called the middle bias even when there's four options it's the middle too because they don't like going for the extremes which I really like but this same effect occurs when playing battleship because you tend to guess coordinates in the middle clearly because there's you know there's not that many spaces on the outside edge compared to how many is in the middle could we apply that logic to other such board games chess for instance could we say that much of the action happens towards the center of the board rather than to the edge i suppose so because actually the only valid moves you can do on the edge are with the rook and you actually have to move pawns out of the way on the edge to get your rook out unless you of course castle midway through the game but by then you'll have pieces everywhere there's you know, more squares to move around in the middle than on the edge, it's clear. Take a knight, for instance. A knight has that L shape that it moves, and in the centre, it's more able to move about than the edge. Mm-hmm. It does remind me of something in Markov Chains that we learnt about. Suppose that you've got a plain chessboard with just one knight in the corner, and the question will be, what is the expected number of moves it would take to move about the chessboard and return to that original place. Now, of course, the way that the knight moves is dependent solely on where it is. If it's on the edge, it's only got maybe two, three, four moves. If it's towards the center, it's got about six or eight. So there, that's another mathematical application of why the middle of the board is probably the best. I mean, I don't know how you'd apply Littlewood's Law to more impossible events. The world ending, what would that be? Because there are so <laughs> Catastrophic! I, yeah, I know, but there's so many different ways the world can end have you thought of some sam no absolutely not i i don't always live a doom and gloom i think betting all this money would put me in some impending doom purple radio podcasts thanks for downloading this purple radio podcast for more great content and to listen live head to purpleradio.co.uk